This is section 22 of What is Man and Other Essays by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Is Shakespeare Dead? Sections 1, 2, and 3. From my autobiography. Scattered here and there through the stacks of unpublished manuscript which constitute this formidable autobiography and diary of mine, certain chapters will in some distant future be found which deal with claimants, claimants historically notorious, Satan, claimant, the golden calf, claimant, the veiled prophet of Corazan, claimant, Louis the Seventeenth, claimant, William Shakespeare, claimant, Arthur Orton, claimant, Mary Baker G. Eddy, claimant, and the rest of them, eminent claimants, successful claimants, defeated claimants, royal claimants, plebe claimants, showy claimants, shabby claimants, revered claimants, despised claimants, twinkle star-like here and there, and yonder, through the mists of history, and legend, and tradition, and, oh, all the darling tribe are clothed in mystery and romance, and we read about them with deep interest, and discuss them with loving sympathy, or with rancorous resentment, according to which side we hitch ourselves to. It has always been so with the human race. There was never a claimant that couldn't get a hearing, nor one that couldn't accumulate a rapturous following, no matter how flimsy and apparently unauthentic his claim might be. Arthur Orton's claim, that he was the lost Tickborn baronet come to life again, was as flimsy as Mrs. Eddy's that she wrote Science and Health from the direct dictation of the deity. Yet in England, nearly forty years ago, Orton had a huge army of devotees and incorrigible adherents, many of whom remained stubbornly unconvinced after their fat god had been proven an impostor and jailed as a perjurer. And today Mrs. Eddy's following is not only immense, but is daily augmenting in numbers and enthusiasm. Orton had many fine and educated minds among his adherents. Mrs. Eddy has had the like among hers from the beginning. Her church is as well equipped in those particulars as is any other church. Claimants can always count upon a following. It doesn't matter who they are, nor what they claim, nor whether they come with documents or without. It was always so. Down out of the long-vanished past, across the abyss of the ages. If you listen, you can still hear the believing multitude shouting for Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel. A friend has sent me a new book from England, The Shakespeare Problem Restated, well restated and closely reasoned, and my fifty years' interest in that matter, asleep for the last three years, is excited once more. It is an interest which was born of Delia Bacon's book, away back in that ancient day, 1857, or maybe 1856. About a year later, my pilot-master, Bixby, transferred me from his own steamboat to the Pennsylvania, and placed me under the orders and instructions of George Ealer, dead now these many, many years. I steered for him a good many months, as was the humble duty of the pilot-apprentice. 
stood a daylight watch and spun the wheel under the severe superintendence and correction of the master he was a prime chess player and an idolater of shakespeare he would play chess with anybody even with me and it cost his official dignity something to do that also quite uninvited he would read shakespeare to me not just casually but by the hour when it was his watch and i was steering he read well but not profitably for me because he constantly injected commands into the text that broke it all up mixed it all up tangled it all up to that degree in fact that if we were in a risky and difficult piece of river an ignorant person couldn't have told sometimes which observations were shakespeare's and which were ehlers for instance what man dare i dare approach thou what are you laying in the leads for what a hell of an idea like the rugged ease her off a little ease her off rugged russian bear the armed rhinoceros or the there she goes meet her meet her didn't you know she'd smell the reef if you crowded it like that hurricane tiger take any shape but that and my firm nerves she'll be in the woods the first you know stop the starboard come ahead strong on the larboard back the starboard now then you're all right come ahead on the starboard straighten up and go long never tremble or be alive again and dare me to desert damnation can't you keep away from that greasy water pull her down snatcher snatcher bald-headed with thy sword if trembling i inhabit them lay in the leads no only with the starboard one leave the other alone protest me the baby of a girl hence horrible shadow eight bells that watchman's asleep again i reckon go down and call brown yourself unreal mockery hence he certainly was a good reader and splendidly thrilling and stormy and tragic but it was a damage to me because i have never since been able to read shakespeare in a calm and sane way i cannot rid it of his explosive interlardings they break in everywhere with their irrelevant what in hell are you up to now pull her down more more there now steady as you go and the other disorganizing interruptions that were always leaping from his mouth when i read shakespeare now i can hear them as plainly as i did in that long departed time fifty-one years ago i never regarded ehlers readings as educational indeed they were a detriment to me his contributions to the text seldom improved it but barring that detail he was a good reader i can say that much for him he did not use the book and did not need to he knew his shakespeare as well as euclid ever knew his multiplication table did he have something to say this shakespeare adoring mississippi pilot anent delia bacon's book yes and he said it said it all the time for months in the morning watch the middle watch and dog watch and probably kept it going in his sleep he bought the literature of the dispute as fast as it appeared and we discussed it all through thirteen hundred miles of river four times traversed in every thirty-five days the time required by that swift boat to achieve two round trips we discussed and discussed and discussed and disputed and disputed and disputed at any rate he did and i got in a word now and then when he slipped a cog and there was a vacancy he did his arguing with heat with energy with violence and i did mine with the reserve and moderation of a subordinate who does not like to be flung out of a pilot-house that is perched forty feet above the water 
he was fiercely loyal to shakespeare and cordially scornful of bacon and of all the pretensions of the baconians so was i at first and at first he was glad that that was my attitude there were even indications that he admired it indications dimmed it is true by the distance that lay between the lofty boss pilotical altitude and my lowly one yet perceptible to me perceptible and translatable into a compliment compliment coming down from above the snow-line and not well thought in the transit and not likely to set anything afire not even a cub pilot's self-conceit still a detectable compliment and precious naturally it flattered me into being more loyal to shakespeare if possible than i was before and more prejudiced against bacon if possible than i was before and so we discussed and discussed both on the same side and were happy for a while only for a while only for a very little while a very 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 little while then the atmosphere began to change began to cool off a brighter person would have seen what the trouble was earlier than i did perhaps but i saw it early enough for all practical purposes you see he was of an argumentative disposition therefore it took him but a little time to get tired of arguing with a person who agreed with everything he said and consequently never furnished him a provocative to flare up and show what he could do when it came to clear cold hard rose-cut hundred-faceted diamond-flashing reasoning that was his name for it it has been applied since with complacency as many as several times in the bacon shakespeare scuffle on the shakespeare side then the thing happened which has happened to more persons than to me when principal and personal interests found themselves in opposition to each other and a choice had to be made i let principal go and went over to the other side not the entire way but far enough to answer the requirements of the case that is to say i took this attitude to it i only believed bacon wrote shakespeare whereas i knew shakespeare didn't ehler was satisfied with that and the war broke loose study practice experience in handling my end of the matter presently enabled me to take my new position almost seriously a little bit later utterly seriously a little later still lovingly gratefully devotedly finally fiercely rabidly uncompromisingly after that i was welded to my faith i was theoretically ready to die for it and i looked down with compassion not unmixed with scorn upon everybody else's faith that didn't tally with mine that faith imposed upon me by self-interest in that ancient day remains my faith to-day and in it i find comfort solace peace and never-failing joy you see how curiously theological it is the rice christian of the orient goes through the very same steps when he is after rice and the missionary is after him he goes for rice and remains to worship ehler did a lot of our reasoning not to say substantially all of it the slaves of his cult have a passion for calling it by that large name we others do not call our inductions and deductions and reductions by any name at all they show for themselves what they are and we can with tranquil confidence leave the world to ennoble them with a title of its own choosing 
now and then when ealer had to stop to cough i pulled my induction talents together and hove the controversial lead myself always getting eight feet eight and a half often nine sometimes even quarter less twain as i believed but always no bottom as he said i got the best of him only once i prepared myself i wrote out a passage from shakespeare it may have been the very one i quoted a while ago i don't remember and riddled it with his wild steamboatful interlardings when an unrisky opportunity offered one lovely summer day when we had sounded and buoyed a tangled patch of crossings known as hell's half acre and were aboard again and he had sneaked the pennsylvania triumphantly through it without once scraping sand and the a t lacy had followed in our wake and got stuck and he was feeling good i showed it to him it amused him i asked him to fire it off read it read it i diplomatically added as only he could read dramatic poetry the compliment touched him where he lived he did read it read it with surpassing fire and spirit read it as it will never be read again for he knew how to put the right music into those thunderous interlardings and make them seem a part of the text make them sound as if they were bursting from shakespeare's own soul each one of them a golden inspiration and not to be left out without damage to the mast and magnificent whole i waited a week to let the incident fade waited longer waited until he brought up for reasonings and vituperation my pet position my pet argument the one which i was fondest of the one which i prized far above all others in my ammunition wagon to wit that shakespeare couldn't have written shakespeare's works for the reason that the man who wrote them was limitlessly familiar with the laws and the law courts and law proceedings and lawyer talk and lawyer ways and if shakespeare was possessed of the infinitely divided stardust that constituted this vast wealth how did he get it and where and when from books from books that was always the idea i answered as my readings of the champions of my side of the great controversy had taught me to answer that a man can't handle glibly and easily and comfortably and successfully the argot of a trade at which he has not personally served he will make mistakes he will not and cannot get the trade phrasings precisely and exactly right and the moment he departs by even a shade from a common trade form the reader who has served that trade will know the writer hasn't ealer would not be convinced he said a man could learn how to correctly handle the subtleties and mysteries and freemasonries of any trade by careful reading and studying but when i got him to read again the passage from shakespeare with the interlardings he perceived himself that books couldn't teach a student a bewildering multitude of pilot phrases so thoroughly and perfectly that he could talk them off in a book and play or conversation and make no mistake that a pilot would not immediately discover it was a triumph for me he was silent a while and i knew what was happening he was losing his temper and i knew he would presently close the session with the same old argument that was always his stay and his support in time of need the same old argument the one i couldn't answer because i dasn't the argument that i was an ass 
and better shut up. He delivered it, and I obeyed. Oh, dear, how long ago it was! How pathetically long ago! And here I am, old, forsaken, forlorn, and alone, arranging to get that argument out of somebody again. When a man has a passion for Shakespeare, it goes without saying that he keeps company with other standard authors. Ealer always had several high-class books in the pilot-house, and he read the same ones over and over again, and did not care to change to newer and fresher ones. He played well on the flute, and greatly enjoyed hearing himself play. So did I. He had a notion that a flute would keep its health better if you took it apart when it was not standing a watch, and so, when it was not on duty, it took its rest, disjointed, on the compass-shelf under the breastboard. When the Pennsylvania blew up and became a drifting rack-heap freighted with wounded and dying poor souls, my young brother Henry among them, Pilot Brown had the watch below, and was probably asleep, and never knew what killed him. But Ealer escaped unhurt. He and his pilot-house were shot up into the air, then they fell, and Ealer sank through the ragged cavern where the hurricane-deck and the boiler-deck had been, and landed in a nest of ruins on the main deck, on top of one of the unexploded boilers, where he lay prone in a fog of scald and deadly steam. But not for long. He did not lose his head. Long familiarity with danger had taught him to keep it, in any and all emergencies. He held his coat lapels to his nose with one hand to keep out the steam, and scrabbled around with the other till he found the joints of his flute, then he took measures to save himself alive, and was successful. I was not on board. I had been put ashore in New Orleans by Captain Kleinfelter. The reason—however, I have told all about it in the book called Old Times on the Mississippi, and it isn't important anyway. It is so long ago. 2. When I was a Sunday-school scholar, something more than sixty years ago, I became interested in Satan, and wanted to find out all I could about him. I began to ask questions, but my class teacher, Mr. Barclay, the stonemason, was reluctant about answering them, it seemed to me. I was anxious to be praised for turning my thoughts to serious subjects when there wasn't another boy in the village who could be hired to do such a thing. I was greatly interested in the incident of Eve and the serpent, and thought Eve's calmness was perfectly noble. I asked Mr. Barclay if he had ever heard of another woman who, being approached by a serpent, would not excuse herself and break for the nearest timber. He did not answer my question, but rebuked me for inquiring into matters above my age and comprehension. I will say for Mr. Barclay that he was willing to tell me the facts of Satan's history, but he stopped there. He wouldn't allow any discussion of them. In the course of time we exhausted the facts. There were only five or six of them. You could set them all down on a visiting card. I was disappointed. I had been meditating a biography, and was grieved to find that there were no materials. I said as much, with the tears running down. Mr. Barclay's sympathy and compassion were aroused, for he was a most kind and gentle-spirited man, and he patted me on the head, and cheered me up by saying there was a whole vast ocean of materials. I can still feel the happy thrill which these blessed words shot through me. Then he began to bail out that ocean's riches for my encouragement and joy. Like this. 
it was conjectured though not established that satan was originally an angel in heaven that he fell that he rebelled and brought on a war that he was defeated and banished to perdition also we have reason to believe that later he did so and so that we are warranted in supposing that at a subsequent time he travelled extensively seeking whom he might devour that a couple of centuries afterward as tradition instructs us he took up the cruel trade of tempting people to their ruin with vast and fearful results that by and by as the probabilities seem to indicate he may have done certain things he might have done certain other things he must have done still other things and so on and so on we set down the five known facts by themselves on a piece of paper and numbered it page one then on fifteen hundred other pieces of paper we set down the conjectures and suppositions and maybes and perhapses and doubtlesses and rumors and guesses and probabilities and likelihoods and we are permitted to thinks and we are warranted in believings and might have beens and could have beens and must have beens and unquestionablys and without a shadow of doubts and behold materials why we had enough to build a biography of shakespeare yet he made me put away my pen he would not let me write the history of satan why because as he said he had suspicions suspicions that my attitude in that matter was not reverent and that a person must be reverent when writing about the sacred characters he said any one who spoke flippantly of satan would be frowned upon by the religious world and also be brought to account i assured him in earnest and sincere words that he had wholly misconceived my attitude that i had the highest respect for satan and that my reverence for him equalled and possibly even exceeded that of any member of any church i said it wounded me deeply to perceive by his words that he thought i would make fun of satan and deride him laugh at him scoff at him whereas in truth i had never thought of such a thing but had only a warm desire to make fun of those others and laugh at them what others why the supposers the perhapsers the might-have-beeners the could-have-beeners the must-have-beeners the without a shadow of doubters the we are warranted in believingers and all that funny crop of solemn architects who have taken a good solid foundation of five indisputable and unimportant facts and built upon it a conjectural satan thirty miles high what did mr barclay do then was he disarmed was he silenced no he was shocked he was so shocked that he visibly shuddered he said the satanic traditioners and perhapsers and conjecturers were themselves sacred as sacred as their work so sacred that whoso ventured to mock them or make fun of their work could not afterward enter any respectable house even by the back door how true were his words and how wise how fortunate it would have been for me if i had heeded them but i was young i was but seven years of age and vain foolish and anxious to attract attention i wrote the biography 
and have never been in a respectable house since. 3. How curious and interesting is the parallel, as far as poverty of biographical details is concerned, between Satan and Shakespeare. It is wonderful, it is unique, it stands quite alone. There is nothing resembling it in history, nothing resembling it in romance, nothing approaching it even in tradition. How sublime is their position, and how overtopping, how sky-reaching, how supreme, the two great unknowns, the two illustrious conjectural abilities. They are the best-known unknown persons that have ever drawn breath upon the planet. For the instruction of the ignorant I will make a list, now, of those details of Shakespeare's history which are facts, verified facts, established facts, undisputed facts. Facts. He was born on the 23rd of April, 1564. Of good farmer-class parents who could not read, could not write, could not sign their names. At Stratford, a small back settlement, which in that day was shabby and unclean and densely illiterate, of the nineteen important men charged with the government of the town, thirteen had to make their mark in attesting important documents, because they could not write their names. Of the first eighteen years of his life, nothing is known. They are a blank. On the 27th of November, 1582, William Shakespeare took out a license to marry Anne Waitley. Next day, William Shakespeare took out a license to marry Anne Hathaway. She was eight years his senior. William Shakespeare married Anne Hathaway. In a hurry, by grace of a reluctantly granted dispensation, there was but one publication of the bands. Within six months, the first child was born. About two blank years followed, during which period nothing at all happened to Shakespeare, so far as anybody knows. Then came twins, 1585, February. Two blank years follow. Then, 1587, he makes a ten-year visit to London, leaving the family behind. Five blank years follow. During this period, nothing happened to him, as far as anybody actually knows. Then, 1592, there is mention of him as an actor. Next year, 1593, his name appears in the official list of players. Next year, 1594, he played before the Queen. A detail of no consequence. Other obscurities did it every year of the forty-five of her reign, and remained obscure. Three pretty full years follow, full of play-acting. Then, in 1597, he bought New Place, Stratford. Thirteen or fourteen busy years follow, years in which he accumulated money, and also reputation as actor and manager. Meantime, his name, liberally and variously spelt, had become associated with a number of great plays and poems, as, ostensibly, author of the same. Some of these, in these years and later, were pirated, but he made no protest. Then, 1610-11, he returned to Stratford and settled down for good and all, and busied himself in lending money, trading in tithes, trading in land and houses, shirking a debt of forty-one shillings, borrowed by his wife during his long desertion of his family, suing debtors for shillings and coppers, being sued himself for shillings and coppers, 
and acting as confederate to a neighbor who tried to rob the town of its rights in a certain common and did not succeed he lived five or six years till sixteen sixteen in the joy of these elevated pursuits then he made a will and signed each of its three pages with his name a thoroughgoing businessman's will it named in minute detail every item of property he owned in the world houses lands sword silver gilt bowl and so on all the way down to his second best bed and its furniture it carefully and calculatingly distributed his riches among the members of his family overlooking no individual of it not even his wife the wife he had been enabled to marry in a hurry by urgent grace of a special dispensation before he was nineteen the wife whom he had left husbandless so many years the wife who had had to borrow forty-one shillings in her need and which the lender was never able to collect of the prosperous husband but died at last with the money still lacking no even this wife was remembered in shakespeare's will he left her that second-best bed and not another thing not even a penny to bless her lucky widowhood with it was eminently and conspicuously a businessman's will not a poet's it mentioned not a single book books were much more precious than swords and silver gilt bowls and second-best beds in those days and when a departing person owned one he gave it a high place in his will the will mentioned not a play not a poem not an unfinished literary work not a scrap of manuscript of any kind many poets have died poor but this is the only one in history that has died this poor the others all left literary remains behind also a book maybe two if shakespeare had owned a dog but we need not go into that we know he would have mentioned it in his will if a good dog susanna would have got it if an inferior one his wife would have got a dower interest in it i wish he had had a dog just so we could see how painstakingly he would have divided the dog among the family in his careful business way he signed the will in three places in earlier years he signed two other official documents these five signatures still exist there are no other specimens of his penmanship in existence not a line was he prejudiced against the art his granddaughter whom he loved was eight years old when he died yet she had had no teaching he left no provision for her education although he was rich and in her mature womanhood she couldn't write and couldn't tell her husband's manuscript from anybody else's she thought it was shakespeare's when shakespeare died in stratford it was not an event it made no more stir in england than the death of any other forgotten theatre actor would have made nobody came down from london there were no lamenting poems no eulogies no national tears there was merely silence and nothing more a striking contrast with what happened when ben jonson and francis bacon and spencer and raleigh and the other distinguished literary folk of shakespeare's time passed from life no praiseful voice was lifted for the lost bard of avon even ben jonson waited seven years before he lifted his so far as anybody actually knows and can prove shakespeare of stratford-on-avon 
never wrote a play in his life. So far as anybody knows and can prove, he never wrote a letter to anybody in his life. So far as anyone knows, he received only one letter during his life. So far as anyone knows and can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford wrote only one poem during his life. This one is authentic. He did write that one, a fact which stands undisputed. He wrote the whole of it. He wrote the whole of it out of his own head. He commanded that this work of art be engraved upon his tomb, and he was obeyed. There it abides to this day. This is it. Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye man, yet spares these stones, and cursed be he, yet moves my bones. In the list, as above set down, will be found every positively known fact of Shakespeare's life, lean and meagre as the invoice is. Beyond these details we know not a thing about him. All the rest of his vast history, as furnished by the biographers, is built up, course upon course, of guesses, inferences, theories, conjectures, an Eiffel Tower of artificialities rising sky-high from a very flat and very thin foundation of inconsequential facts. End of section 22. Parts 1 through 3 of Is Shakespeare Dead?